For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson with some hot news in this latest readout video from our Wednesday Wake Up newsletter. And it's about how the electric vehicle market is on fire. Uh, no, really. One of the supposedly vital methods to reach net zero by 2050 is rapid, massive, forced conversion to electric vehicles. But even though the Canadian government is determined to keep you safe from everything, including your own stupidity, it nevertheless carefully fails to track the tendency of these miracles on wheels to burst into flames. These fires are no joke. Even the New York Times has now written about how e-bike battery fires became a deadly crisis in New York City, adding that, quote, city leaders are racing to regulate battery-powered mobility devices, which have been the source of over 100 fires so far this year, end quote. Good thing fire trucks are still allowed to run on gas, isn't it? Still, according to a National Research Council report, authorities here in Canada think fire schmire. That report said, quote, in Canada, since there is no national database on fires, and most provinces don't track whether vehicle fires involve electrics, the number of fires of electric vehicles cannot be reported. Most of the reported fires in garages are in parking structures attached to apartment buildings, end quote. Now, if trucks from a pro-freedom protest convoy were bursting into flames in crowded apartment building parking lots, we feel that the government would certainly find a way to report it. Now, the NRC report goes on primly to say, quote, Vehicles are active during charging, which poses a hazard in garages. Although large vehicle fires in parking structures are not common, they might lead to large economic losses, end quote. Yeah, and losses of life, in case you care. And another thing that's on fire when it comes to climate is carbon offsets. You know, those things where the jet-setting elite justify their carbon-spewing hypocrisy by pointing to their purchases of bits of paper saying it's okay because somebody somewhere did something like plant some trees that sucked enough CO2 out of the air to make it all right. Uh, not that anyone's looking very closely at what's going on there, you understand. Alas for such schemes, the trees in question grow in forests, including here in Canada, and now, Bloomberg laments, quote, Canada's explosive wildfire season has already pumped millions of tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Some of that carbon is coming from vegetation burned at a carbon offset project, highlighting the fragility of a tool the world is relying on to fight catastrophic climate change, end quote. Explosive. Catastrophic. Like talk of wrecking the planet, it's no longer enough just to say that something is bad or might be ominous. We need disaster, and we need it now, which they just might be getting in policy terms. You see, some of us knew all along that while they're alive, trees absorb carbon, but when they die, they emit it, sometimes gradually as they decay, and sometimes suddenly as they burn. Now, the alarmists seem to think that fires are new and climate-driven, though, as Tony Heller recently noted, back in 1992, quote, the New York Times wrote, Western landscapes in pre-settlement era were very smoky places. Now they blame smoke on climate change, end quote. In any case, Bloomberg laments, quote, on June 3rd, British Columbia fire officials spotted a blaze that has impacted the Big Coast Forest Climate Initiative Project, end quote. And, instead of asking whether these were special carbon sequestering trees with superpowers, unlike the estimated 300 billion other ones in Canada that are also presumably absorbing carbon and then giving it off when they burn, we want to focus on one small detail. Quote, About 100 hectares of our 40,000 hectare project was involved in this fire, end quote, according to one of the managers. 
And as we've observed before, climate alarmists sometimes talk as though nature was so fragile that one careless human touch could unmake it. But here they're implying that the climate crisis itself is so tiny that 100 hectares of trees can make or break it. Phooey. Canada has an estimated 362 million hectares of forest out of our 998.5 million hectares of total land area. So this whole carbon sequestration project is 0.011% of our forest, and the part that burned is 0.0027%. If that small a clump of trees really matters to climate change, if it can make a major dent in it, then the problem is trivial, and if not, this whole carbon offset business is a delusion or worse. Here I'm going to interrupt myself briefly to remind you of the importance of clicking here and supporting our work. Because at CDN, we don't get big government grants. We're not supported by those huge environmental foundations. And we're certainly not in the pocket of big oil. It's up to you, our viewers and our readers, to make a one-time or monthly pledge. $3, $5, $7, so that we can continue to produce the newsletter and these videos and challenge the false consensus around climate alarmism. And now, back to the show. Ah. And in the newsletter from the But Not For The file, we note that Canada's Governor General burned nearly 25,000 litres of jet fuel to deliver a trite anti-climate catastrophe speech in Finland back in February, in which he said we must act now, but presumably not the way she just did. Also, Matthew Wielicki reminds us that researchers say, quote, climate change is making birds smaller, end quote, even as researchers ask, quote, climate change, why are birds getting bigger, end quote? So it seems that the size of bird brains hasn't changed. Also, there's a lot of hype from the climate crowd these days about lab-grown meat, which we hope doesn't require a lot of electricity. But surely there's at least a hint of paradox in people wanting to save nature by feeding you chicken that was extruded from a machine. Also, the week that we produced this newsletter, the eyes of alarmist media were on Texas because it was having, of all things, hot weather in midsummer. And that's apparently due to global warming, although for some reason most of the United States had been cooler for months than the average temperature since 1991. Now, when I went to Texas, which was in August of 1984, the heat was frightful, I might add. But of course, if it's cool, it's just weather, including the frost warnings that I got here in Ottawa into May, or the heavy snow in west-central Alberta in June that clogged highways and nearly killed two Belgian hikers. Or this year when Washington, D.C. almost set a record low for the date of June 22nd, while three-quarters of the American population had an unusually cold month of June. And in case you'd like a globe in your global, a viewer alerts us that on June 21st, Canberra, Australia had its coldest day in nearly four decades as cold snap continues, hitting minus 7.2 Celsius. But of course, a cold snap is just some brief weird anomaly. The story on that incident didn't mention climate even once. But let it be hot somewhere, and the New York Times blares, quote, the United States is facing extreme heat and wildfire smoke in different regions. The two threats aren't connected directly, but one factor is adding to their capacity to cause misery, climate change, end quote. In the newsletter, we also note sadly that Mark Carney is back. No sooner did private firms begin fleeing from his G-fans, that's the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, than this UN Special Envoy on Climate Action and Finance talked the World Bank Group into setting up the Private Sector Investment Lab, which no less impartial an authority than the 
World Bank, calls, quote, a concrete step in a broader effort to develop and rapidly scale solutions that address the barriers preventing private sector investment in emerging markets, end quote. You mean barriers like the World Bank refusing to lend money for the kinds of energy projects that work? Or that alternative energy schemes are really risky investments? Uh, something like the latter. You see, quote, trillions of dollars of investment are required annually in emerging markets and developing countries to make adequate progress toward climate goals, to manage the risks of climate change, and to tackle poverty, end quote. Mere trillions? Gosh, where do we sign? Although, if they really wanted to tackle poverty, helping poor countries develop reliable energy sources just might be worth considering. Now, another major item in the alarmist arsenal lately has been boiling oceans. Okay, not lately. They haven't been able to get enough of them since James Hansen's overheated Venusian comparison. In case you haven't seen it, in a video now curiously removed from YouTube, Hansen claimed that, quote, you can get to a situation where it just, the oceans will begin to boil and the planet becomes, uh, so hot that the ocean ends up in the atmosphere and that happened to Venus, end quote. And then there's Al Gore's Davos rant that CO2 is what's boiling the oceans, which aren't boiling even if The Economist talks about boiling point. And then we had this sudden, brief, mysterious spike in temperature in the North Atlantic. Now, back in 2015, NOAA was scratching its head over, quote, the lack of significant warming at the Earth's surface in the past decade or so, end quote, the famous hiatus, and so it claimed that the heat must be somewhere and hypothesized that it was hidden in the deep ocean. Then, when it showed up again, they smoothly pivoted to rhubarb about La Nina and El Nino, the latter having been reinvented as a climate phenomenon despite existing since way back when. As for this brief, weird spike in the North Atlantic, well, it hit far too fast to be driven by atmospheric warming, and then it quickly faded. So, it was probably geothermal. Still, Euronews.green said, quote, sea temperatures around the UK and Irish coasts are up to 5 degrees Celsius warmer than normal for this time of year, smashing records, end quote. Instead of wondering why the water would be that much warmer suddenly, since the air around the UK doesn't appear to be any warmer on average now than it was 20 years ago, it hollered, quote, warming seas could bring jellyfish and basking sharks closer to the shore and cause poisonous algae to bloom, end quote. Could. Not did. Still, we're all going to die eaten by boiled sharks, sautéed in jellyfish and poisonous algae even if the fact that the ocean warming is local suggests that it's not global. Still, before we fry, or get devoured, let's look at another chapter in our series on the Clintel analysis of the IPCC's AR6 report, this one by Nicholas Scafetta and Fritz Fahrenholt on the role of the sun in climate change. Or rather, its lack of role, according to the IPCC. A long time ago, the IPCC did pay attention to the sun and its possible influence on climate, but as we showed in our video on the subject, that was then. Now it's all CO2, all the time, and IPCC insiders say Mr. Sun is out of the picture. Which is kind of odd, since this Clintel chapter lists 150 or so scientific publications that the IPCC itself cites about the influence of the sun on the climate. And it's hard to ignore, or should be hard to ignore, the fact that the sun's output was very high during the medieval warm period, fell to very low during the Little Ice Age, and then ramped up again during the 20th century to what may have been its strongest level in 10,000 years. At least, 
it's hard to ignore unless you pretend there was no medieval warm period or little ice age. Now it is true that the variation in output of the sun is not strong enough on its own to explain major climate changes, but that just means there'd have to be an amplifying mechanism of some kind. And since climate models take the very mild warming that's directly attributable to CO2 and add strong amplification mechanisms, they can't claim there's no such thing. So instead, they just ignore the sun and anything else that might interfere with their favorite narrative. Still, the Clintel authors insist that, quote, in the long run, facts and observations will prevail and the current uncertainties will be properly solved and the numerous empirical findings supporting a significant solar or otherwise astronomical effect on the climate will be confirmed, end quote. As for these computer climate models more broadly, Willis Eschenbach, who's a computer programmer with many decades of experience, just looked under the hood and he didn't like what he saw. Eschenbach obtained the source code for Model E, which is NASA's own superintelligent whiz-bang climate model, and he published a report for Net Zero Watch discussing some of its weird kludges, fixes, and, well, ad hoc cheats. And the first really weird thing about it is that it's written in the ancient programming language of Fortran. The reason for that is that it was created many decades ago, and it's just sprawled and bloated since as generations of programmers made these on-the-fly adjustments to cope with the fact that it didn't actually model the real world very well, instead of ever going back to the drawing board with better assumptions and more modern coding. Then there's the example Eschenbach sites of polynyas. These are meltwater pools that form on sea ice and polar regions, and they help determine how much of the sun's energy gets reflected back to space rather than warming the surface. But in an earlier version of the model, these polynyas could remain liquid regardless of how cold the air was, even if it was well below freezing which is a bit of a problem. But instead of undertaking a proper fix of the underlying physics, the modelers just added a crude ad hoc rule limiting how many days these melt pools could form no matter what else was going on. And then, in the latest version, they substituted a crude ad hoc limit on their overall reflectivity regardless of the number of days they could form. And all of this is done so that the model's failures could be hidden instead of addressed and fixed including temperature, which is surely its main job. NASA's Model E, like many climate models, sometimes generates temperatures that are way out in left field. And that's not our phrase, or Eschenbach's. Comments embedded directly in the code include this one, quote, sometimes the computer temperature iterated out in left field someplace, way outside any reasonable range, end quote. But when you face a problem like that and fix it with the equivalent of duct tape or bailing wire, you're ignoring the fact that the model's representation of the world is obviously wrong in order to convince people that its representation of the world is obviously right, which is cheating. And again on models from the co2science.org archive, we look at a study of their ability to handle atmospheric downward long-wave radiation at the surface, which is mercifully abbreviated to LD, but unmercifully, and as usual, it's not good. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and my gasoline-powered car is not on fire. That's right.